scripture reading is Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. And we'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and the wife, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It is a testament to the wisdom of God that he came up with the idea of male and female. In fact, I think personally it's a wonderful idea. He designed each sex to be special and unique, and despite what our society says in ever-increasing volume, they are not intended to be interchangeable. He placed within each one the qualities especially desired and needed by the other. It is a perfect complement, as it were. I'm aware that not everyone who is married or who has been married finds the fulfillment in marriage that they desire, but I do believe that it is available to everyone. That is, God's design for marriage is perfect. It is our implementation that sometimes is less than perfect. And there's a way to make marriage sparkle with all the joy and all the fulfillment that God intended when he designed us as he did. In other words, God has given us certain laws and principles. And when those principles are faithfully followed, then marriage works. And when those principles and laws are ignored, marriage does not work. It is just that simple. I tend to agree with the counselor who said there are no incompatible couples. There are only unwilling individuals. The regret is that both husband and wife, as a part of the marriage union, must be willing. We all understand that in some of you in a very personal way. And that is that you can be willing. You can make, want to make the marriage work. But if the other partner is unwilling then you're not going to have a very successful marriage. It requires two who are willing to do what God has said. In fact, there are many cultures still in our world today in which the marriage is arranged by the parents of the bride and the groom. The couple really has nothing to say about it. And I know that kind of tests our credulity. It's it's difficult for us to imagine that there are people, there are folks and arrangements still in our world today where the parents of either the bride or the groom pick out who it is that they want their son or daughter to marry. In fact, it's not uncommon, if you can believe this, that for the very first time that they meet is on their wedding day. And those cultures, and this is probably the most difficult to believe, those cultures tend to do much better than ours in producing long and lasting and successful marriages, which can be a bit confusing. I am, not, I am not recommending that arrangement today. I, I like the arrangement that we have where we get to pick out who it is we're going to marry and our parents don't do that for us. But I am recommending that, that attitude toward marriage. That is the understanding that it's a permanent relationship, that it is intended to be a commitment that lasts for the rest of our natural lives, and that there are no desirable alternatives. Both individuals must be willing to work out the wrinkles that arise in that relationship, and there will inevitably be wrinkles. We all understand that. We live in the real world. So my primary question tonight is, in light of the 1950s song, who really did write the book of love? 
Our culture particularly stresses the importance of love in a healthy relationship. And I want to go ahead and admit that at least to that degree, our culture has it right. Marriage involves love. And love is an important commodity in that relationship. So there's no doubt that our society is right when they say that love is essential to a successful marriage or any kind of successful relationship. But the problem is that we have allowed Hollywood to define what the word love means. And that's the real problem. In fact, it's often unclear what we mean by the word. I may say I love spaghetti. And in the very next breath, I say I love my wife. But I want to go on record tonight in saying that I have two entirely different feelings when I look at a plate of spaghetti and when I look at my sweet wife. They are both pleasant. They are both immensely different. And yet I describe both of them by the word love. I love one and the next breath I love the other. It's kind of like the Tom T. Hall song written many years ago that I've referenced in earlier lessons where some of the lyrics say something along the lines of I love little baby ducks and old pickup trucks and I love you too. Okay, Tom, are you saying that you love me in the same way that you love baby ducks and trucks? I am deeply moved. (laughs) The issue here really is the original language. You and I well know as students of God's word that there are four different Greek words translated by our one English word, love, in our New Testaments. And the problem is we do not know by reading along in the receptor language, which for us happens to be English, Which love is being described unless you happen to know the original language? Let's run through those. I know that you're familiar with with most of them, but consider this a refresher course. The first is agape love or agapeo, but most normally we refer to it simply as agape love. And, And the most important thing about that word is to realize that agape love is not describing a feeling. It's not talking about an emotion. It isn't describing the affectionate aspect of our relationship. So it's not talking about a feeling at all. It's a decision to make, to put another's needs and welfare ahead of your own. Agape love really is seeking someone's ultimate welfare, wanting the very best for them, no matter how much that may inconvenience me or no matter how many sacrifices that I may need to make in order to see that happen. That's especially true in a marriage relationship. I'm putting your needs ahead of my own. God commands, note that, he does not suggest. It is not a request, it's a requirement. God commands husbands to love, that is, agape their wives. And he's also commanded us, Ephesians chapter 5, we'll be looking at it in a moment. But he's also commanded that we love, agape, our enemies. And that's in Matthew chapter 5. And yet he is not commanding us to feel toward our enemies the same way that husbands are supposed to feel toward their wives. But he is commanding us to put them ahead of ourselves. And Romans chapter 12, I think, in verse 20 would help to clarify that or at least give some insight into it. The Bible says, for God so loved, there's agape, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now that doesn't mean that he enjoyed Or that he felt good about allowing his son to be crucified. It simply means that he put the needs of a lost and dying world ahead of his own needs and his own desires. The second word that we find, a Greek word at least, that's found in scripture is the word phileo. P-H-I-L-E-O. Basically this word does describe a feeling. Now remember, let's review. 
Agape love does not describe a feeling, it describes an action. When I'm actually doing what is best for someone else, even if that is above and beyond my own personal interest and welfare. The second, however, does describe a feeling. That's what a 17-year-old boy means when he looks into his girlfriend's eyes and says, Do you love me? Primarily, he is interested in or what kind of emotional relationship do we have. But, but it's not just a boy-girl thing. We need to understand that. It has nothing to do with sexuality. It has everything to do with friendship. Literally, the word phileo could be described or defined as feeling good in the presence of another. So it is really a feeling. It's an emotion. It's the affectionate aspect of our relationship, and it is admittedly important. The problem in America is, as we've talked about a number of times from this pulpit, is that we want to have the caboose out in front driving the train. And, and, and the engine, the locomotive that drives the train is agape love. It's action. But if, we're, if we have our actions in place, if we are actively seeking someone else's highest good, and I'm thinking primarily of a husband-wife relationship here, that means that the emotions, the feelings, the affection will also come because that's the other part of the train. But we've got to make sure that we allow the right love, agape love, to be driving the train. Let me say it this way. I love Harold Savage. Harold is a friend of mine. He's a gospel preacher, a faithful man over on the east side of Atlanta, and I came to know some over 30 years ago now. I feel good when I'm in Harold's presence. He and I click, and we have conversations, sometimes hours-long conversations, about things that would matter very little to someone who's not a gospel preacher. But Harold and I have been through similar experiences we both have sweet and lovely wives and families that we love very much. And so when we spend time with uh, Harold and Kay, we absolutely love and enjoy and, and consider that precious time. So he's a dear friend. I feel good when we are in each other's company. That is phileo love. That's friendship love. Then third is eros, from which we get our word erotic. That is what, exactly what it sounds like. It's the word for sexual attraction, that which got the way God has wired us. So that biologically, that our race will be perpetuated because opposite sexes fall in love. There is that attraction. And so the human race otherwise would be annihilated, would go out of existence in one generation if it were not for this type of love. But then fourth is storge. It has to do with family attraction and bonds. If my father had not been my father... I would still have thought that he was a very nice gentleman. But because he was my father, I felt differently about him than I did about other nice gentlemen who might walk the streets of our world. There was a special affection and bond between me and my father. Many of you can say exactly the same thing about people in your own family, your moms, your dads, your sons and daughters, maybe even cousins that you have been close to. I have special feelings for, for my sister and for certain of my cousins. Storge love is what we're referring to when we say that blood is thicker than water. Or when we sing that old song that has been recovered dozens of times, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. Because there is a special relationship, a special bond that has to do with family. 
Now, let's consider for a moment our limited view of the word love. Again, we are constricted in the English language because the word love is used to describe all four of those different words. All of them, by the way, with the exception of eros, is found in the New Testament. In our culture, when we think or speak of love, almost primarily, if you don't it, believe me, just, just watch it very closely. Most people, when they talk about love, they're talking about either phileo love, friendship love, I feel good, I have the warm fuzzies when I think about or when I'm with that person, or they're thinking about eros love. They're thinking about the physical attraction between the sexes. And, and we think of the feelings that we experience in another's presence or of the sexual attraction aspect of human relationship, that electricity that's in the air when we're together, that old black magic that Sinatra used to sing about. The problem comes when we try to build a relationship or particularly a marriage on those two kinds of love alone. Folks, if our marriage is built on just phileo, emotional affection, or eros, or any combination of those two things alone, that marriage is in all likelihood doomed. There are at least two reasons why it won't work. Let me mention those quickly. Number one, because both of those things, the reason is both of those two types of love fluctuate. And secondly, because we have absolutely no control over their fluctuation. Feelings are not subject to our immediate control. Have you noticed that? If someone does you dirty... You don't have to think about it. You get angry. Now, what you do with that anger is another matter for another lesson. But we don't have immediate control over our emotions. We all have mood swings. We all have variations in the way we feel. Let me get it personal, but hopefully not too personal. There are times when I want nothing more than my sweet wife, Mia, sitting next to me as close as she possibly can on the couch. And yet I'm still reminded of the old Groucho Marx movie where a lady was holding him in a loving embrace. And she said, let's get closer. He said, lady, if we were any closer, I'd be on the other side of you. <laughs> there are times when I want Mia to be close to me. There are other times, she's not in here, so I can say this. <laughs> but she's in the nursery, probably watching the monitor so I may need a ride home. <laughs> there are times when I want her to just let me watch the game. You see, emotions vacillate. They fluctuate. How we feel toward one another at the moment may not be how we feel toward one another emotionally in terms of raw affection in the next moment. There are times when I feel close to my family in a way that I can't describe, but the songs... So many songs have been written that describe it well. But then there are times when I don't feel that way. But my commitment to my family and especially to my wife is to still act right toward them whether I feel like it at the moment or not because that's agape love. And if I will act right, I have God's divine guarantee that the feelings will return. The emotion will be there. The affection that we so greatly desire will be a part of that relationship, but only if we are both committed to acting right toward one another. Again, as I've often said, the problem that we have in this country that we turn this whole arrangement around. We want to feel right, 
We want to feel the emotion and the affection, and then I'll act right. No, God says you act right. Then you have his guarantee that you will feel the way you want to feel. The point is, if we try to build any relationship, especially marriage, on those two definitions of love alone, it will be short-lived. It cannot survive. In fact, I recall a scene from one of my favorite musicals, Fiddler on the Roof. Tevye, the patriarch of the family, has been surprised that one of his daughters has decided that she is not going to marry the person that he, the father, would have selected for her in that Jewish community, that she wants to marry someone that she has, imagine this, fallen in love with. And so she has broken the news to her father, Tevye, that she's going to marry this boy and uh, not someone that he would have chosen. Well, as he thought about his own marriage, he turned to his wife, Golda, and he asked her this lyrical question. Do you love me? Her response immediately was, I bore your children. But still, he's saying, but do you love me? I cook your food. Again, he's saying, but do you love me? And until then, they knew that their marriage was based on agape love because they had served each other. They had spent their whole lives devoted to, to making one another happy and sacrificing for one another. But now he also wanted to know, do you do you love me? Do you phileo me? That is, I know that we are one another's servants, but right now I'm asking, are we friends? And I'm saying that you can build a marriage and a life on agape love, but if you're relying on the, the other two alone, it just won't work. You can't build any lasting relationship on phileo or eros love alone. The only understanding of love that's within your control is agape, but again, remind you, because agape love is an action and not a feeling. That's because you can always choose to put your mates and your family's needs ahead of your own. No matter how you happen to feel, it just depends on how you look at it. Now, finally, let's notice very quickly God's description of the roles of the husbands and wives. And if you have turned away from Ephesians chapter 5, I would encourage you to turn back there. We want to look at some verses. Christians learn their theology And I feel kind of awkward saying this, but we need to be reminded, I think, from time to time. Christians learn their theology from the Bible and not from culture. May I say that again? Our theology comes from the Bible and not from contemporary culture. The role of husband and wife in a Christian marriage is described in the Bible, and that description is constant. By that, I mean it is never changing. And because that's true... What God has to say about marriage and the home is going to be at variance with what our contemporary culture says about marriage and the home. And and because culture changes, and sometimes it is going to be in radical variance. That is, we're going to hear a completely different message from our world about what marriage, even if it is necessary... Or what love is than what God's word has to say. So first, let's look at Ephesians chapter 5 in light of what Paul says is the wife's role. I know you're familiar with this. But again, this is consider this a refresher course. We need to hear this from time to time. And I'm grateful that Ed is teaching uh, love and respect as a refresher course back in the back on Sunday morning. Because we need to be reminded of these truths from time to time. And by the way, I, he didn't ask me to say this. But one of the reasons why I love the book that he is using as as a guideline for the course, is because it is four square centered on Ephesians 5 and verse 33. 
Let the wife uh, respect her husband, see that the husbands love their wives. So it's very biblically based, and we're going to see that. Look at the wife's role as Paul describes it. And, and really, it's verses 22 all the way down through the end of the chapter. But let's just pick out some verses here as we describe first the wife's and then the husband's role in the marriage. Verse 22 and 23, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. The word describing her role here in this text is to subject or submit herself to not someone else's husband, but to her husband. I am well aware of the fact that that is diametrically opposed to our modern cultural teaching. But our theology, again, I say, comes from the Bible, not from People magazine. We know that the Bible teaches that man and woman are equal before God. Did you know that? We are all equal. We stand on the same equal footing, spiritually speaking, before God. In fact, Galatians 3 and verse 28 tells us that as far as that spiritual equality is concerned, Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Men are not closer to God than women are. Women are not closer to God than men are. We are all on an equal and level playing field. But while man and woman are equal in their relationship to God, there's no doubt that the Bible teaches that husbands and wives still do not have the same functions in their marriage. And sometimes I think that's where we fall off the track. Now let's be very clear about this. One is no more important than the other. If you can read Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, and come away saying the husband's responsibility in the home is more important than the wives or the wives more important than the husband. Then you've read some verses that I've never found in it. Which is more important? The lock or the key? Well, neither one. Both of them are necessary to produce a functioning unit. One without the other is of absolutely no use. The wife is to respect her husband's position in the home, knowing that God has put him there as God-appointed male leadership in the home. That's God's, that's God's mandate, not because he's the biggest, not because he's the fastest or the loudest, and certainly not because he's the smartest, because that often is not the case. She respects his position because she knows, watch this carefully, that God put him there. And her respect is constant. Here's what that means. Her role is not based on how well she thinks he's doing in fulfilling his role. He may be doing a lousy job, but she still has a responsibility to do what Paul has instructed by inspiration here in Ephesians 5. It's based on God's constant command and design in her life. But what if her husband isn't a Christian? Is she to submit and subject herself to his authority, to his leadership? Even then, and the unequivocal answer, according to Scripture, is yes, because he's still her husband. And God's order for the home is still in place. And specific instructions for uh, that's, that kind of case are given in First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where Peter talks about what happens when a believing woman is married to an unbelieving man. All of this, by the way, is, is qualified by Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, where two disciples said, when they're called upon to no longer preach the gospel message, but we must obey God. rather than man. There is a principle that permeates every relationship and every responsibility in life. If a husband demands his wife do something that is in clear violation of the will of God, her first responsibility is to obey God, not her husband, or vice versa. If a woman should uh, uh, put pressure on her husband to do something that is in a clear violation of the will of God, his first responsibility is to obey God and not man, or in this case, woman. 
Second, let's look at, by the way, the Peter passage I just referenced in 1 Peter chapter 3 is telling us how that a, that a Christian woman can lead her non-Christian husband to the Lord. Here's the greatest chance that you will ever have in leading him to the Lord is by your gentle spirit and by the consistency of your Christian example lived in front of him on a daily basis. Secondly, let's look quickly at the husband's role in the marriage still here in Ephesians chapter 5. And as we do that, I think we really began to see the balance and the fairness that God has designed to be a part of that relationship. The Ephesians passage tells him to love his wife. By the way, thankfully, that's agape love. Seek her highest welfare, even above your own interest. And even if it means that you have to sacrifice, do that. So love your wife. And then he tells us to what degree. Even as Christ loved the church. And the second criterion is even as your own body. Just as surely as you would not do anything if you're in your right mind that would deliberately harm yourself. You will always do that which is good. And in the healthy, best interest of your wife. So even as Christ loved the church and even as your own body are the two criteria that Paul uses there. The counterpart of wives submit yourselves unto your husbands is not, watch this, is not husbands you tyrannize and bully your wives. Instead, it's husbands you love your wives. Paul says you're to be her lover, not her tyrant and not her dictator. And the Greek word for love here, again, I remind you, is agape, the most unselfish kind of love there is. It's love that seeks only her good, the kind of love that Christ had for his church and still does. And that means the husband desires to please his wife. His love is tender, it's responsive, it is gentle. He does nothing to bring her any pain or hurt. Her happiness and welfare is more important to him than even his own. He recognizes that she is every bit as adult and bright and capable as he is. He then responds to her as a joint heir with him. That's the way Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. I love that language. They are, we are joint heirs in the grace of life. He's very much aware that when she willingly submits to his leadership, that's going to make her very vulnerable. I'm sure you've thought about that. When a Christian wife says to her husband, I'm subjecting myself to you and to your spiritual leadership in this home. You don't know where he's going to take you. You don't know what that's going to involve. You don't know the level of commitment that that's going to require. So that makes you vulnerable. But he's never, ever going to take advantage of that vulnerability any more than Christ would ever take advantage of his church. Having seen the roles of the husbands and the wives, we need to, at the end here, note how each one must help the other to fulfill his or her role. The husband can make it very difficult for his wife to respect him. And then he can turn around and condemn her for not respecting him enough. The wife can be very unlovable and then wonder why he isn't as tender toward her as she would like for her husband to be. Or both of them, watch this, can make it easy for each other. That's God's plan. That's the ideal. That's why Ephesians 5 is in the Bible. You can make it easy for one another. It all depends on them. Because here's a principle that is true in every situation in life. We usually get what we invite and not what we demand. So every married person has this one primary task. To discover the needs of his or her mate and then cheerfully go about meeting those needs. As long as you keep doing that, life will keep getting better and better 
And you really will, as Peter said, grow together in the grace of life. Paul Faulkner tells this story. I end with it tonight. It seems a lady, and you know the story, but it's germane to this subject. A lady told her counselor that she couldn't stand her terrible husband. She said, I not only plan to leave him, but I want to, when I leave him, to inflict the greatest amount of pain, emotional pain, that I can on that man as I possibly could. Well, the counselor explained, we see, ma'am, if you leave him now, because you have been so hateful to him, it's not going to inflict any pain on him. It'll be a relief to him if you leave him right now at this moment. So it won't bring any pain if you do that now. He advised her to spend six months... Warmly serving him, caring for his needs with a servant's heart, making him feel strong and manly. And then he said, at the end of the six months, since you have been treating him so nicely and so wonderfully and caringly for that six months, now when you leave him, it will represent real pain in his heart and his life. So after seven months, the counselor saw her again and said, how did it go when you left your husband? She reply was, oh, I never left. My husband has become the warmest, lovingest, caringest individual on the face of the planet. I would not think of leaving him. You see, it works. The one single factor that is characteristic of a functional, healthy, happy home is that both husband and wife are committed to focusing on meeting the needs of one another. And folks, if you want to know a surefire way of improving your marriage, do this for a month. No, let's make that three months. Do this for three months. Are you listening? Stop trying to change your mate. I want to say it again. Stop trying to change your mate. Accept them, warts and all. Ignore the behavior that you want to see decreased. Lovingly reinforce the behavior that you want to see increased. Each day, help him or her to feel good and important and appreciated by you. Help him or her feel special. And you have my personal guarantee that it will work. But here's what won't work. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And the only way to guarantee that your marriage can work, by that I mean God's guarantee is to make sure that your home is four square centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. Your home may not be a thoroughly Christian home tonight because one or the other of you may not yet have made the decision to become a child of God. And you can correct that before you leave tonight. Through your faith, prompting your sincere repentance, your willingness to confess Jesus as God's Son, and to be baptized, to have his blood wash all of your sins away, you can leave this place with a brand new life, a brand new start, with a brand new perspective on life, but only when you do it God's way, while we stand and while we sing. I am resolved no longer to linger, strong by the world's delight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have a little.